Welcome everyone to our next session, sixth of nine, in the uh, Change of Heart series. And you should have received a new set of notes coming in today, so the guys have been diligently passing them out. John's got some here, Daniel has some over here. Anybody over here need? If you put your hand up, Daniel will get you some. Anybody over here? You guys, there's one there. All right, very good. Thank you guys for getting those out. Before we get into today's lesson, uh, the Mud Hens game, the annual Mud Hens game that we go to is July the 21st. I bring it up because some of you here are new, relatively new to the church. And we always try to schedule something uh, that you can come to if you're relatively new, uh, that you can get to know people in a setting other than at church. So the Mud Hens is one example of that. In the fall, we will have a uh, hayride and bonfire. So we do those things for those reasons. And I especially encourage those of you who are new to our church to take advantage of something like that so that you can indeed uh, get to know others uh, in a setting unlike on a, on a Sunday morning. You can get the tickets for that at our website, cbctrenton.com. This series is titled Change of Heart, but we have seen that if we're going to have a change of heart, there need to be uh, some changes uh, in other things. The first of those that we talked about for a few weeks was a change of perspective, a change in the way you, the way you look at yourself, the way you look at life, the way you look at God, the way you look at your circumstances. I spent some time in that section noting that for many of us, we come to a class like this because indeed we want something to change. Very often that something that we want to change is someone or a situation. And in the change of heart class, we're trying to make the case that the first and most important thing that needs to change for all of us is not what's outside of us, but what's inside of us, thus the name change of heart. And we need a change of perspective to see that, to work on that, and then whether or not the things or persons outside of us change, we are better equipped to handle those. So we need a change of perspective. We also need, we've seen the last few weeks, a change of counselor, a change of counselor. And that counselor is God himself. Because God is the only one who is not plagued with all of the problems that all of us bring to the table. If you go to a counselor who is not getting their counsel from God, then you're going to someone who is flawed like you are. And they have their own flawed ideas like you do. So what they need and what you need are principles and truths from someone who doesn't suffer from the same malady that all of us do, namely, namely sin, a heart that is not attuned as it is supposed to be and made to be toward God. So we need a change of counselor. That counselor would be God, but where does God do this counseling? He does it in a book that he gave us. He does it in the Word of God, in Scripture. So if you are someone who knows Scripture and you are honest with yourself, about yourself, and about your own struggles, then you can receive that counsel from God very directly. But very often, we don't see ourselves clearly. We're biased toward ourselves. 
we see ourselves in a more favorable light, and therefore we need someone, a friend, a brother or sister, who will come alongside us and provide that counsel from the Bible. So it's going to, the source needs to be from the Bible, whether you're getting it yourself or you're deriving it from a friend or informally or a counselor, biblical counselor, in a formal setting. So this idea of getting counsel from God's Word, because God is, in the last set of notes you received, God is the original psychologist. It's the study of the soul, and God has written a book about the soul. And so God is the one who alone can give us accurate information about the unseen, about our spirit, about our our soul. And so if you are going to get that counsel from God's book, here's what God's book uh, says about that. It says that there is this activity that Christian people need to engage in for others and need to receive from others that's embodied in a Greek word. Your New Testament was written in Greek. Call, the Greek word is nuthateo, nuthateo, nuthetic. And sometimes biblical counseling is called nuthetic counseling for that reason. Because it comes from this word, nuthateo. So you need a change of, of counselor. The counselor is God. God does his counsel through his word. And whether it's you doing the counseling for yourself or you're receiving it formally or informally from someone else, it needs to be, you need biblical counseling, as do I, which means it's going to be this nuthetic biblical counseling. What does that mean? That word, that Greek word in your New Testament, nuthetao, is translated a few different ways in English. It's translated sometimes instruct. So you instruct yourself from the Word of God or you instruct someone else from the Word of God. It's sometimes, uh, it's sometimes translated admonish or warn. So instruct, you're trying to teach someone. In warning and admonishing, you're trying to bring someone back from the error of their way so that then they can be taught. And you see this in a f- number of passages in your New Testament. Let me give you a few. One is in Romans chapter 15 and verse 14. Romans 15 and verse 14. Romans 15, 14. I myself, this is Paul writing to the Romans, I myself am convinced, brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness, full of knowledge, and you are able to instruct one another. So that passage, Romans 15, 14, I, Paul, I'm convinced that you, my brothers and sisters, who by virtue of being brothers and sisters in Christ, have the Holy Spirit, and you have an affinity, therefore, with the Word of God. You desire to read it, put it into practice in your life. I'm convinced that you are full of goodness, you are full of knowledge, And so you are able to instruct one another. You are able to, the word translated in some translations, instruct, it's 
translated variously, but it's that Greek word, nuthetel. It was in 1970, 70, 1970, that a man named Jay Adams, some of you know that name, but Jay Adams wrote a book, and it's a seminal book that is credited with really popularizing and starting just over 50 years ago the biblical counseling movement in evangelical churches. It's been a very good thing for our churches. Adams is the guy who did that, and he wrote this book, and here's the title of it, Competent to Counsel. Competent to Counsel. And he got that title, Competent to Counsel, from that verse that I just quoted to you, Romans 15 and verse 14. And so that word, nuthateo, can not only be translated instruct, warn, admonish, but it can be translated counsel. And so he translated that verse as, I myself am convinced, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, full of knowledge, and able to instruct, he said, you're competent, able to counsel one another. He's saying if someone has the Word of God and the Spirit of God, then they're able to do this. That's good news. You don't have to have any letters after your name in order to be instructed about your soul and its struggles because God has given you a book. God, the original psychologist, has given you a book. So Romans 15, 14. We can do this. You can do this. We can do it, toge we can do it together. That's one place, important place where it's used. 1 Thessalonians... 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Where Paul, the last chapter of his first letter to the Thessalonians, he's wrapping up and he's saying, in your relationships with one another in the church at Thessalonica, you're going to have different kinds of people. And you need to treat people according to where they are and what it is they may be struggling with. And so he says in that verse, uh, help the weak. So this, that word weak may be just people who are physically weak. And so as a church body, give them the help that they need in their physical weakness. But they may be spiritually weak as well. And so be ready to provide spiritual nourishment to brothers and sisters as you talk to them to build them up. Help the weak. He says, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. The word that's translated faint-hearted is, is literally two-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D, two-souled. The person's like divided. You know, they're up and down. You know people like this. You may be that person, the person that's up and down. And what does that person need? They need, they need encouragement. Encouragement in the Bible, the word encourage means to come alongside, but the difference between biblical encouragement and worldly encouragement is, worldly encouragement tells you it'll be all right. The Bible tells you why it will ultimately be all right. Christian encouragement tells you it will ultimately be all right, but we've got a good reason to believe that because of the gospel, because of Christ, because of God. Encourage the faint-hearted. But so far, we haven't gotten to the nuthateo word yet. 
And in that same verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it says, help the weak, encourage the, the faint-hearted. But it says this, warn, that's nuthatel. Warn the idle, I-D-L-E. Warn the idle. Tell them they're doing something wrong. Warn. According to God's word. And they need to change it. Now why are they called, these people that need to be warned are called the idol. Why? Here's why. Because in the church at Thessalonica, that was a particular category of people that were openly and obviously being disobedient to what God says. Their idleness meant they weren't working. They're idle. And Paul had had to instruct them about the fact that we all need to work for what we get. Able-bodied people. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, he will say, if a man will not work, he should not eat. That's how serious this problem of idleness was in the church at Thessalonica. Some of the people were... Many believe idle because they believe the Lord was coming back tomorrow. So why should I work? Why should I provide for my family? All of that. It's all ending. So they had a spiritual reason for being idle. And Paul says, warn. I told you this is what needs to happen. In his second letter, he's even more explicit about it. So it's saying this, warn people who are disobedient to what God says. So you've got a number of contexts in which this word, nuthateo, Translated counsel, instruct, warn, admonish is, is used. But a summary definition of this process of biblical nuthetic counseling is this. It's loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. That's what biblical counseling is. That's what nuthetic counseling is. Now, notice it starts with the word loving, because if you just said confrontation with the truth, I know some of you, you would get really jazzed because you like to get in people's grill. And God said, Pastor told me I'm supposed to confront you. So get it right. Straighten up. There's the loving part, okay? It's loving. It's, it's Ephesians 4.15. Speak the truth in, remember? Speak the truth in love. So it's loving, but it is confrontation. It is causing a brother or sister to come to grips with, come face to face with the truth of what God says versus where they are. Now, you and I ought to be doing that through self-counsel all the time. When we come to the Word of God, there ought to be this loving confrontation with the truth. A loving God has given us His Word so that we can see ourselves in the mirror of the Word and then make changes ourselves. But if we love our brothers and sisters, we're in relationship in order to mutually build one another up, and this is one of the ways we do it. The Bible says to do so. Warn the idle. You're competent to counsel each each other. So it's loving confrontation with the truth. That would be with what God says, not what you say, not what I say. 
I mean, coming to somebody to try to help them in love is hard enough because it's not always received well, correct? So it's going to be all the harder if, you're, if what you're coming to change them into is, is your mold rather than what God says. So it's loving confrontation. You're coming face to face with the truth, but it's with the truth, not with what I want you to conform to for personal reasons. Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. And that's something that in a healthy body should be going on on a regular basis. You should have people in your lives who can speak into your life that way. And you need to have the courage and enough love for other people with whom you have relationship to speak into their lives that way. I've had people over the years do that for me. I've done it for other people. I am better for that, for people having spoken my lives. Years of my life. Years ago, I had a brother, because I was when I said I know you guys, you like to get in people's grill. I don't like to get in people's grill, but I can. Okay, so, so I can be pretty good at this nuthateo thing. But the problem with that is you can be too good at that. And you can put people on the defensive. The loving part can get drowned out. And I had a brother come to me decades ago. And he quoted to me 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. It says that the servant of God must be gentle. Well, that hurt. But he loved me. And he wanted to see me do well. Wanted to see me grow in the Lord. Wanted to see me help other people. That was of great help to me. I still struggle with it. But I thank God that somebody loved me enough to do that. I've done it with others. You need people who will do that. We need to then nuthateo one another. We need to instruct, warn, admonish, counsel one another. Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Now, that's for sin struggles primarily. When somebody's struggling with sin, they're not being gentle. Then they need something like I got. They need to be warned if they're disobedient. Those are for personal sin struggles primarily. But then there's another category of fallenness in the Bible. There are two categories of fallenness. So you've got a heading of fallenness, living in a fallen world. And what does it look like? Well, it looks like two categories of things. It looks like sin that you do and I do. It looks like that. But it also looks like suffering. That is, bad things that have happened to you unrelated to personal sin. It's just because we live in a fallen world. So the heading is fallenness, and the two categories are personal sin that we commit that needs to be corrected, but then there is also suffering not related to personal sin, just stuff i got to deal with. And that is what we need a change, uh, a change regarding, that second category. We need to do what I said with regard to the first category. Have relationships with each other, counsel one another, love each other enough to say the hard word in a loving way. But there's this whole other category of just suffering. Things that you've got an illness, you've got a 
persistent economic struggles. You've got a boss who is regularly berating you. You know, somebody outside you're suffering and you're not doing anything to, I'm assuming, to bring this on. All sorts of ways in which we, we suffer. And here's what we need. We need a change. Top of page 15 in your notes. Regarding changing. <laughs> so in order to have a change of heart, we've got to have a change of perspective. We've got to have a change of counselor. And we've got to have a change regarding changing. And here's what I mean by that. What, what do you do when it doesn't change? What do you do when the suffering that you're experiencing persists? What do you do if it never changes? Because God does not say, does he, this side of heaven, that all of the suffering that we go through is going to be rectified. Some of the things that go on in our lives are going to persist. And because they're going to persist, then we need a change regarding changing. In particular, being willing to accept the fact that it may not. That the situation, the circumstance, may not change. You see that in the Bible. Where there's suffering not related to sin. If the suffering is related to sin, well then you can repent, you can stop sinning. That'll help, at least. It may even cure it. You know, if you're suffering because you're drinking... Because, you're, because of drunkenness, then if you stop drinking, well, then that's going to help quite a bit, isn't it? But there still may be things that you've already caused by 20 years' worth of that that are going to be hard to get out of. So you may be able to end it by the suffering you've caused by sin, but many times the suffering that we endure is not because of sin at all. It's just because we live in a fallen world. Job. You all know the story of Job. In a day, one day, God takes everything. Now I say God takes everything from Job, including his family. God takes everything from Job. You say, well, it wasn't God doing that. It was Satan doing that. <laughs> well, you remember in the first chapter of Job, God and Satan have a discussion. And the Bible says that Satan comes and presents himself before God. And God says, where have you been? I love it when God does that with people. I love it when he says to Adam, Adam, what are you up to? Hey, Cain, what have you done? God already knows the answer. You know, they say good prosecutors in court, they never ask a question that they don't know the answer already. Well, God, by virtue of being an omniscient God, he already knows the answer. He's just trying to, you know smoke out what's going on with, with Satan. And he says, so Satan, what have you been up to? And he says, I've been roaming to and fro throughout the earth. That's what he says. Well, God knows this. And then Satan, uh, and then God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, if, if it's me, having read the book of Job, 
I'm saying to God, don't bring me up. <laughs> okay? When you're having that discussion with Satan, leave me out of it. All right? Bring up Pastor Larry, bring up Pastor Rich, but leave me out of it. Okay? But you, have you ever noticed it's God who brings it up? Have you considered my servant Job? God brings him up. And then, and then Satan says, well, he only serves you because of what you give him. If you take that stuff away, you'll see that all you are is a vending machine. Anybody remember vending machines, by the way? All right. You just give the goodies. If you take the goodies away, it's not because of you. It's not because of your person. It's not because he loves you. He serves you because of what you give him. Take it away. You'll see. And God says, you're on. But God says, you spare his life. Now, notice who's orchestrating this whole thing. God is. That's why I've said to you many, many times, Satan is, in effect, a two-bit player in the drama that is human history. There are not two equal and opposite gods out there, a good one and a bad one. There's one God. And everyone and everything is under his command. So he sends Satan. God takes everything away in a day. And then at the end of chapter 1, this is all happening in chapter 1, Here's Job in the, in the chapters that follow. When I preached through the book of Job, I said, I think if we were looking at Job in modern day terms and what he went through, we would label it, and I think probably accurately, PTSD. I mean, he's just shell-shocked at everything, as anyone would be, right? But at the end of chapter 1, this guy who is just before God the Bible says he's blameless before God. At the end of chapter 1, after all this happens, he says, Naked I came into the world, and naked I will leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. See, the reason that God asked Satan about Job is because God knew that about Job. God knew that he had prepared Job. He knew that Job would handle it. He'll be PTSD. He'll be shocked. But Job knows me. And he'll prove it. And he did. Didn't he? All of that drama happened. And I don't know whether to this very day, I don't know what Job knows about the dialogue between Satan and God. I know that when it was happening, he didn't know anything about it we get the opportunity to read in the book of Job, Job chapter 1, that there was this dialogue between Satan and God, and God was the one who brought up Job. And God was confident that Job was going to do what Job ultimately did. But Job doesn't know any of that. So as Job endures it, he's trying to put it all together. Lord, what have I done? And the Lord had already said of him, not to him, but of him, he's blameless. He's a righteous man. His friends come along and say, Job, you've got a woman on the side, don't you? Job, you've got a bottle that you're hiding behind your desk. 
Job, you've got a gambling problem somewhere, don't you? Job, you've got some sin because this does not happen to people that don't have some sin. But in fact, it was nothing about Job's sin. It was all about suffering and God's purposes in Job's suffering. Joseph, when Joseph is sold and left for dead, in effect, by his treacherous brothers, he ultimately winds up in jail. He doesn't know, Joseph doesn't know, at the time he's in jail, that this is all going to turn out and he's going to be second in command to Pharaoh at some point, and God's going to use this to bring his people to Egypt, and as part of the grand drama of redemption, they're coming to Egypt because Joseph went there first. They wind up in Egypt, they're, they're in slavery, but God does all of that, 400 years worth of that slavery, so that the book of Exodus can be written. And with a mighty hand, God brings them out. But when all that was happening with Joseph, he doesn't know that, that that's the future, that that's what's going to happen. So we need a change regarding changing. Specifically, when we don't know if it's going to change. Or perhaps we've got some kind of diagnosis that we know will not change. Our suffering may not, this side of heaven, change. And God has his good purposes for doing that. In the challenge with Job, we know about the Satan and God confrontation. With Joseph, we learn later that God is setting all of that up for the Exodus as part of his grand plan for history. But in all of our situations, we don't know specifically what God is doing. He may be doing more than what I'm going to say, but he's never doing less than what I'm going to say here. God may be doing more in your suffering than this, but he's never doing less than this. God allows chronic suffering in the lives of his people in order to make us dependent on him. God allows chronic suffering in the lives of his people in order to make us dependent on him. One more time. God allows chronic suffering for his people in order to make us dependent on him. Now, I see that in the lives of some of God's people. One of them in particular we'll talk about in the notes in a, in a moment, the Apostle Paul. But this lack of dependence on God is a chronic problem that we all have. So God allows suffering in the lives of his people in order to make us dependent on him, chronic suffering. This lack of dependence on God is our nature. It's our sin nature. But God is redeeming his people, those of us that are saved, and part of the way that he hones us is through refining this dependence on him. Do you remember going back to the garden, our first parents, Adam and Eve, and they are told, you've got this bounty. 
You can eat freely of all the trees in the garden. There's this one tree you cannot eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The serpent comes, he talks to, he talks to the woman, and the woman is deceived by the, by the serpent. And here's how this, part of how the serpent deceives her. He tells her that God knows that you will be like him. That's the reason he doesn't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because you can be like him. Well, that was too much temptation for her. She ate, she gave some to Adam, as we saw last week, who was with her. But it was this idea of you will be like God. God, hey, listen, Eve, God wants you to be dependent on him. I'm giving you a ticket to independence. You will be like God. You don't have to be dependent on somebody else. You don't have to be dependent on somebody else's word for it. You will be like God. And this idea of the knowledge of good and evil is the idea that if you do this, if you desire independence rather than dependence on me, then what will happen when you disobey is that you will define good and evil yourself rather than it being defined by me, God. So what this whole struggle was about is this. In fact, somebody has, has said, I heard a preacher say this years ago, the history of the world can be defined in three words. Who will rule? Who will rule? And that was what was going on in the garden. Who's going to rule Adam and Eve? Is it going to be the creator or is the creature going to seek to rule themselves? You'll be like God. You'll be able to make your own rules on right and wrong. Let me ask you, since uh, Adam and Eve did that, what's it been like? Have people been making their own rules? You see any people around you making their own rules? Your kids go to school with people who are making their own rules? Humanity by nature is not, is, seeks to be independent of God. And that was the temptation in the garden. For God's children, he gives us chronic suffering. For, for many reasons, but one of them always is for us to be reminded that we're dependent on him. Top of page 15. Did you know that God is working behind the scenes to undermine any remaining self-reliance in you so that you will be able to trust him more effectively? Exhibit A is the Apostle Paul. He had a God-ordained difficult life. Read that line, God-ordained difficult life. Now, do you think Joel Olstein has ever typed that sentence? A God-ordained difficult life. No, don't think negative. Be positive. You can't say those negative thoughts. I can do a, I can do a mean Joel Olstein. Do you guys want me to go in my... And it's a, it's a self-help talk, right? 
Speak positive words. Don't say negative things. God ordained, God ordains a difficult life. You can have your best life now. Joel says. But in fact, God does ordain all that comes to pass. And he has his good purposes, and especially for his people. So he gives this God-ordained difficult life to Paul. And here Paul, though, learns the lessons through that of dependence upon God and joyfully experiences what God allows to come his way. Amazing. So four chapters of the letter to the Philippians, 16 times the word joy or rejoice is used. You come to the last chapter. He's writing it while he's chained to a Roman guard. Wrote it, by the way, while he was in that imprisonment we talked about in the first hour in Rome. And he, 16 times, talked about being joyful. Comes to the last chapter and says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. He says, I have learned what it is to be well-fed and to be hungry. I have been in plenty and I have been in want. But I have learned, chapter 4, verse 10, the secret of being content in any and every situation. I can do all things through whom? Through Christ. See, and this is what Christ wants us to know. You, what you get comes from me. It's through me. You're dependent on me. Paul learned that. He learned the secret of being content. I can do all things then through Christ who strengthens me. So for Paul, suffering was not a lifestyle to spurn, but a means that God used to push him to true greatness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves. Knowing Christ and being able to tell others about Christ was his purpose. The singular animating passion did not coexist with the desire to overcome his problems. He knew better. He perceived the point of his problems, which were to enable him to more effectively put Christ on display. Suffering in Paul's life was like a magnifying glass. It allowed him to magnify Christ through his sphere of influence. Suffering is one of those mysteries God gives us so we can understand him more clearly. Equipped with this kind of understanding, you'll be enabled to enjoy a deeper life with him. It is a maturity that does not make suffering disappear. It's the suffering that fuels and sustains Christ-like maturity. Those two sentences, again, it is a maturity that does not make suffering disappear. It's a, it is the suffering that fuels and sustains Christ-like maturity. Now, how does God, how does God do this? On the one hand, you say, how does a good God use bad things for these good purposes? How does, how does that happen? And if you were with us in the first hour, I mentioned some of that, and I gave the disclaimer that, look, there are things about God and his ways that are always going to be, to some degree, mysterious to us. 
Probably fewer of them than we think, but nonetheless, there are such things about God. And so I don't claim to be able to give you all of God's reasons. I can do what other theologians have done, though, and give you some ways to try to get your mind around this. So Jonathan Edwards, in the 1700s, he was the president of Princeton uh, Seminary, and he was a great thinker, a great theological mind. And Jonathan Edwards said that God has, is the only being in the universe that can look at every event, every circumstance, through two lenses. Two. We only have one lens. We can see what's going on. We look at it through that lens. If it's suffering, if it's hard, if it's difficult, then we label it bad. I don't want this. That's what I see. But Edwards said God sees that, and that's why God can, in Scripture... He can label things the same way we label them. Bad, evil, difficult, trial, all ad- adverse, all of that. God calls all of these things negative like we do because he sees them through that lens like we do. But he has a lens we don't have. He has the widest possible lens. He sees the connection between that thing and every other thing that's happening in his world And what it is that he's achieving through all of those for his people. That's what's behind. That Edward's two lenses are what is behind Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The reason Paul can say that is because the God who works all things has that widest lens. He sees how the bad stuff, and if you read further down in chapter 8, Paul lists all the bad stuff, a bunch of it. But in the midst of that, God sees it and labels it that way, but he sees the connection between that and everything that he's accomplishing in his world and especially for his people. He's doing a lot of things when he allows these kinds of things into our lives, but but nothing, nothing less than dependence on God, teaching us dependence on him. And that's what he did with the Apostle Paul. If you take a look back on page 15, one of the mistakes sometimes made in counseling is to assume that the counseling can fix your problems. Good biblical counseling will help radically reshape our view of our problems, but it cannot always remove the problems themselves. And God sometimes desires the problems remain in order to achieve this greater purpose to reflect his character, to reflect him as the sovereign one, as the preeminent one. That's part of his character. So that we are dependent on him. We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Years ago, I read this in a sermon, but I don't expect any of you to remember last week's sermon, let alone something that I did years ago. An anonymous poet compared our lives to a tapestry. The tapestry has a top and a bottom. If you look at a tapestry from underneath, 
No matter how beautiful the image is on top, underneath you see nothing but a tangled mess of threads. It's incomprehensible. You look underneath and you say, how can this thing be a work of art? How can this thing be beautiful? We look at our lives and we see a tangled mess of circumstances and often there's nothing in the tapestry but dark threads and we ask, how can this be beautiful? What is God doing? And the poet reminds us that there is the view from above and the view from below. And the poet wrote, Not till the loom is silent and shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors he works steadily. Often he weaves sorrow and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. God has the lens. He sees what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He's doing a lot of things. But one of the things he's always doing with his children is reminding us of our dependence on him. Bring those notes back with you next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessing of yet another Lord's Day to gather with your people, to raise our voices in praise to you for who you are and what you have done, to be able to honor you by giving back to you a portion of what you've entrusted to us, to open your word before us and to see what you have done in the lives of your people in the first century. The same God who worked in them is at work in us. And so help us to take those truths with us now, today, this afternoon, and this coming week as we serve you. Lord, we thank you for this hour that we've had, to be reminded that you are at work in all things, that you use the difficult things for good purposes in our lives. One of those chief purposes is always for us to be reminded of our dependence on you. So Lord, help us to think about that, ponder that, meditate on those things this week. May we act as your ambassadors in the spheres in which you have called us to to serve you. We ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.